Our passage of God's Word comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. I will actually begin reading at verse 20. Uh, So this is where Jesus begins the sermon upon the plain or the level ground. And that's where I will begin. Uh, But our passage will focus upon verses 27 through 36. Uh, Before I read our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he had blessed the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning in the name of Christ. Uh, We come to beseech you for your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who gave this word through the evangelist Luke for our infallible instruction. We ask that your Spirit would dwell within our hearts this morning, that as the word goes forth and is sown, as we hear We ask that we would indeed have ears to hear and to take heed, that this word might find fruitful ground to bear fruit, to bear the fruit of of repentance and faith and obedience unto you, to bear the fruit of your love to us and our love to others, to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 6, verses 20 through 36. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, And when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thanks have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thanks have you? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thanks have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, 
and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. He has, uh, at the first part of his sermon, given what we recognize as the Beatitudes. He's given only four, and he's given their uh, matching woes as well uh, to delineate between his disciples and those who are not. What is true blessedness, and how can we hope for it? Because many of his people there were his disciples. We read that he comes down from the mountain after he's appointed his twelve apostles. He gathers them, and then he gathers the rest of his disciples. And then there's also that great multitude seeking that power to go out from him to heal them, even of demonic possession. And so there is a mixed multitude there on this level place uh, uh, that Jesus is used to teaching. And he, first addressing his disciples, points out their blessedness, despite the fact that there were many that could not... Name their blessedness in the world at the time. There were those that had left all and followed Jesus. There were those that were uh, suffering from uh, the, uh, the, the enmity that were uh, waged against disciples of Jesus Christ. That even at this point, they were being cast out of the synagogues. At this point, the ban was being prescribed upon their names in infamy. That at this point, when Jesus says, Blessed are you who are persecuted, there was an audience to hear and understood what was being said. Because they had experienced it. Because they had lived it. Uh, Because there was a growing, as we had seen in several of the previous uh, descriptions of Luke, a growing opposition to Jesus Christ. But he reminds them that they are blessed. And they are blessed because, though poor, they have the kingdom of God. They are blessed because, uh, though they are persecuted by the world, that they fare the same, same fate as the prophets of old. That they ought to rejoice, because that means that God will fill them, that God will give them joy, and God recognizes them. So what is then their course of action and their duty in the kingdom of God? What is the life of that kingdom? What is the way of the people of that kingdom? What is the habits of the subjects of God in his son, Jesus Christ? It is love. This is in this paragraph or our extended paragraph, couple of paragraphs. This is uh, the, the command, and this is all that it comes back to. It is love, I say, which unto you who hear, love your enemies. And then he goes down in uh, verse 35, but love ye your enemies. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. 
we ought to remember and see and not let this slip from our attention that though we are moving into uh, the, the practical aspect of the blessedness of the disciples of Christ and the, the life of love that is required from us, know also that he heightens the blessing here. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you. He doesn't say it that way. He says, love your enemy. Great is your reward, and you shall be children of the highest. Be merciful as your, not God, not king, but father is merciful. There, there is, even as we in our flesh look at this as, as prescriptions and you know, hard sayings. These are not easy sayings. These are well known to us. We all know that we are to uh, turn the other cheek to one who strikes us. We've all heard that when we are, uh, have our coat taken from us, that we ought to give our shirt or our coat as well. We ought to lend without expecting anything in return. But who actually does this? And do we not spend more of our time looking at what Jesus says and backpedaling and qualifying what Jesus says quite plainly here? These are not easy things to hear. But Jesus, in the midst of giving them, is reinforcing the blessedness of them. That love is the life of the kingdom of God. And true love loves her enemies. He says, but I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. Verse 27 and 28. Now, the word he uses here is agape. Agape. Uh, we, uh, we, we've kind of heard this before. We know that there's this, that in Greek there is these distinctions of the word love. And that they mean different things. Sometimes we, uh, we kind of falter on exactly what do they mean. Agape in its verbal form, agapeo. Uh, it was common in the Greek world, uh, and it often had certain connotations that we shall see. But the noun itself was something that uh, owes its existence, as far as we can tell, to the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Uh, that agape is something of an invention of the people of God uh, for the Greek language. And it is then gathered in with... Uh, Christian, as Christ comes into the world and picks that up and, and gives it to the people. So what, is it, what does it mean? Uh, well, there, just to give you the four basic words for love in Greek, you had the storge, which is uh, that affection that you have. It's, it's, uh, most of these are, uh, in fact, all of these are uh, an affection that is called out by uh, sort of, I wouldn't say against our will, but our will doesn't really play a part in them. They're natural, we might say. So the, uh, the, the love that a man has for his family, the love that a mother has for her children, a father has for his children, a husband has for his wife after they're, they're married and, and of long, part of their, their knit social group. That's the affection, storge. 
Uh, then you have uh, philia, which we might translate as friendship. Uh, with this word, we find uh, Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly love, that sort of thing. And these are the affection of friendships. That these are attachments that grow and, and that we like. This it can be translated like. Uh, and if you like somebody, uh, we, we say we love them, we like them. Uh, that is the right word for that. Uh, then we have eros, which is uh, not a word used in the New Testament. Uh, but we know what that means. Uh, the, the passionate love between a man and a woman. Uh, the, also, by Greek understanding, no, not subject to the will. And none of these were. These were brought out by uh, inner sort of, these were natural things that arose in the interaction of mankind, one with each other. And then we have agape. Uh, agape is distinct in that it is a, a child of the intellect. Now, we don't mean by this that it is something for the scholars and their ivory towers. What we mean by that is that it's controlled under our will, that it is rational, that it is understandable, that there are reasons for it. And it, sometimes it even goes against the feeling. Okay. And the way the verb is used, uh, we could tell it kind of helps us understand the noun. Uh, it is the love that uh, a general has for his soldiers. It is the love that a good king has for his subjects. It is the love that a pater familias has for his family, his household, his servants even. Uh, it is looking at the person and seeking their good regardless of your affection for that person or their affection for you. We sometimes say it's unconditional love, but that, that gets manipulated so that it, we, we say it's love without judgment. Understand. Agape doesn't exclude discernment and judgment. Uh, God's grace uh, it takes that away. But there is a rationale. There is a judgment about it. This is what is good for you. And I'm seeking that good. And therefore I love you. Uh, modern English translations can't differentiate that. Especially modern ones that exclusively use love. The King James. Uh, we know. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You're going to find not the love chapter. But the charity chapter. Which is admirable. It could, the Latin caritas. The problem is, is that they're not consistent and it never kind of translates into the verb form. And so some of the interesting comparisons there are, are, are in those places. But, but here we have Jesus saying, love your enemies. The reason why I went, and I don't normally go onto the linguistic stuff, but the reason why it's important to do so here is that when we hear that, we often kind to, uh, of assume that we have to like our enemies. Understand that that's not the way the word is used. It's not what God is meaning by it. And, and to, to, to kind of put that in there creates confusion. Because the whole point of them being your enemies is that you do not like them. And if you like your enemies, they are no longer your enemies. 
And no longer then does the, the function of what Jesus says here carry any weight. Now, love can have as its goal, the, the, and often does has as its goal, the ending of enmity. So to transform those that we love as agape, that we also love them philia, and, and delight in them. That, by the way, is part of the grace of what Jesus Christ does to those who are at enmity with God. This agape comes from God. It is why only God's people have uh, brought this noun forward in the Greek language as something uh, of interest and, uh, and of worth considering. Because without God, we don't do this. This is a grace not simply a virtue. It comes only from God's special care. And it is known because of his love to us. If you look in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, verse 7, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And all the words here that are being used is agape. And this was manifested, the love of God towards us, because that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. It is something uh, that comes from God. When John, when John records Jesus' words to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, we see the connection there with world and love. God sought the good of the world. Not because he had affection for what was there. They were his enemies. God does not love sin. God does not love the words of the Old Testament, the words even in the New Testament, are God does not love the wicked. And if we are in our sin, we are the wicked. But one is agape, one is not. His affection is not on those that are disobedient unto him, even if they are his. But his love, his seeking their good and providing the remedy of their sin, of providing the remedy of the death in which humankind has gotten himself into, that is what God does in Jesus Christ. That is the love of God for not just his elect, for the world. Because Christ is given for the world. We see this uh, especially in God seeking the good of his enemies. Turn to Romans 5. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for adventure for a good man someone even dare to die because of certain affections. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Much more than being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from wrath through him. And so if we didn't hear that properly, he repeats in verse 10, For if, when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. See, God sent... Christ doesn't come to make it so that God can love us. God loved us, that's why he sent his son. But there is a certain sense in which, because of the equivocating of our language, uh, we, can, we can understand why Jesus, in that love, made it possible for God also to like us. Right? Because he comes to take away that enmity. That's how he loves us, to get rid of that enmity. But that enmity was there. And if that is how God acts with us, if that is what Christ is coming into the world to accomplish for his Father, and therefore you who are the disciples of Christ must love and love even your enemies. This is, this is what is said, 27, 28. Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, bless them that curse you, praise for the, pray for them that despitefully use you. Verse 36, be ye merciful, compassionate, loving, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Our Savior returned good for evil done to him. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, he's on the cross. He is being spat upon. He is being derided by those that should have welcomed him into uh, his rights as the Messiah. He is crucified between two thieves. And Luke is the only one that gives us the repentance of one of the thieves. But before he repents, he's one of the two that is mocking him. And it is said by Jesus Christ at that point, before this other one discovers the folly of his actions, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 23-34. He is seeking their good, even as he is experiencing their enmity. Does this mean that Jesus liked everyone that was doing this? I don't know. I am not in his heart at that point. But what I can say is that regardless of his affection for everybody there that was brutalizing him, and for what he was doing as good for them, that whatever his affections were, he was loving them. This opens up all sorts of things for the Christian faith. One of the reasons why marriage is to death do us part is because we have agape. The world, they, you know, a man and a woman, they come together and they burn for marriage if they're doing it right. It's eros that moves that, right? And then for those of you who have been married for a good long time, you know that Eros still there, but it's not always there. But it's philia, affection. And it becomes more than that. It becomes a, a, a gut affection 
and protectiveness and storge. But even so, there are times when the affections of a husband and wife are at cross purposes. And what keeps us together is agape. When Christ, Paul is talking uh, to uh, the, the husbands and wives in Ephesus, he doesn't call them to affection and, and desire. He calls them to agape, to remember the love of Father and Son and Son for the church. And so if we are to love like God loves, if we are to love in any sort of sense that reflects at any aspect of the divine glory, then we have to love in such a way that we love our enemies. That is a non-negotiable. If you take the name of Christian upon you and you cannot love your enemies, then that name does not belong to you. Because that's what is being worked in the kingdom of heaven. And so we have practical agape love then uh, given in these uh, things. Now, uh, look at verse 31. This is a, a sort of summary. It's, we all know it is the golden rule. Uh, it's given, as you would have that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. That, that we ought to be uh, looking for the good of others, even as we would like for them to look for our good. It is a positive, active seeking of good. Now, you may hear, and you would not be wrong, that the form, there are forms of the golden rule everywhere. Throughout all the ethical teachings of the world. It is, we might say, not just a bit of revealed theology, but natural theology. That even the pagans can grasp it. The difference is, between the golden rule given by Jesus Christ and all others, including Jewish rabbis, is that Christ is positive. It's a different rule when it's put in the negative. As you would not like others to do to you, don't do so to them. That is the form of the golden rule found universal. That's a good rule. It's a good rule of living in a civil society. Don't do to others what you would not have them do to us. But it's just civil society. The kingdom of heaven is higher and more glorious. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. Now, this is, is not something to be manipulated. Just to see in a second. But what, what is underlined here is an active, positive Seeking of the other's good. Love your enemy. How? Well, you do good to them even when they hate you. Verse 27. You bless them even when they curse you. When they say something bad about you, you say something good about them. You pray for them even when they are despitefully using you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then... Then we see these, and these are the real hard places, verse 29 and 30. 
Unto them which smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. Unto him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid to take the, the coat too. Uh, in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, when he preaches, it sounds like somebody going to law to sue for it. Here, uh, on the Sermon on the Plain, he's speaking as if somebody is actually accosting them and robbing him of it. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Well, how can we live like that in a society? Jesus is not talking about civil society. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And what he is telling us to do is to be careful to neutralize provocations. When Jesus was struck by one of the police, temple police, he did not strike back. He spoke. And in many ways, he was offering the other cheek as well. Uh, That he... That Jesus lives this, but so do the disciples live this. Uh, they are they're careful to neutralize any sort of provocation. So Paul writing to the Corinthians, and they have this habit of going to the pagan courts, and he says to them, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Now therefore there is utterly a fault amongst you, because you go to law with one another. Why do you not rather take the wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? It would be better to do that within the house of God than than to seek justice of pagans. What does that say about King Jesus when you need pagans to settle your disputes? Take the wrong if you have to. That's what uh, Paul says. Neutralize provocations. Romans 13.10, Paul gives somewhat of the negative form of the, um, the, uh, the golden rule here, uh, though, though it's in service of the positive. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, and therefore is the fulfilling of the law. It's intentional effort to build others up. Look at, look at first, oh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verses 4 through 7. Charity suffers long. That is agape. Love suffers long. It's kind. Note, it says suffers long. It puts up with a great deal. Love envies not. Vaunts not itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeks not her own. Because she's looking at her enemy and seeking that good. Is not easily provoked. Because if you're easily provoked, you're not going to love your enemy. Thinketh no evil, because if you're constantly putting the worst spin on something, you're creating enemies instead of neutralizing the enmity. Rejoices not in iniquity, because if you're rejoicing in iniquity, you're not by definition agapeing. You don't want to rejoice in evil done to them. You don't the the word the Schrodenfreude, rejoicing in the misery of our enemies. This is specifically called out by Paul is not what love does. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and most pertinent to Jesus' words in our passage, endures all things. So that good might be done to the other. 
Now, can you think and sit back and think of sections when turning the other cheek would actually be bad for your brother? When being generous and giving what that person asks for would be bad for them? Absolutely. Does God give us everything we ask for because we ask for it? No. But he does us good. You see. And so when Jesus says, and this is the reason why he gives after these two hard sayings, verse 31, which is a principle, as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Yes, you're, you're in a sin-sick world. There's going to be different situations. But if you take this rule, if you're seeking the good of the other as you would have them seek your good, then you're on the right track. It's an intentional effort to build up the other. But it's not disinterested or victimized. Uh, there is, there has been even in the church, in the Protestant church, in the, the revivalist tradition, uh, the Puritan tradition in America, an idea to reduce all this to disinterestedness, disinterested love. It, it sounds awful the way it means. But it, what it means is that you don't find your good in this. It means that you're not even seeking your good. It tends to say that if there's any benefit to you, then your love is not agape, it is mercenary love. That's not what Jesus says here either. Uh, when, when we seek the good of others, we're still seeking our own good. Note how he puts that in verse 35. He says, Love ye your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward will be great. You will be children of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. There are, there is benefit in being this. When we seek the good of our enemies, we're not doing it to our own detriment. But rather when we see, I mean, there might be sacrifices we make. Christ, seeking the good of his enemies, made a sacrifice. He died upon the cross, but he didn't die upon the cross thinking he was going to stay dead. He knew he was going to rise up again. And not just knew that he was going to do it, he planned to do it because it was in his hands to do so. He knew he would defeat Satan. It wasn't that he was going to suffer and suffer forever. He was going to suffer because he could endure it and he loved us. And he was going to win a prize, he was going to win a church, he was going to win a bride to himself. So when we are doing these things, we remember we have a just king. Uh, Paul, a good commentary on this in Romans 12, verse 17, through the end of the, through 21. He says, Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, and this, this kind of ties into Jesus' 29 and 30, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, ye shall heat coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That these things that Jesus Christ is calling us to do, he is calling us to do so remembering that we have a just king. Remembering that we are part of the kingdom of God. Remembering that we have a God that will avenge us if that's what needs to happen. 
And so oftentimes you have the prayers in the Psalms. Psalm 35 is a prayer of, I have done good to my enemy. I did good and they returned to me enmity. And what does David pray there? He says, he's not taking it upon himself. He says, Lord, remember their injustice. He's handing the vengeance over to the Lord so that he can continue to do what he's been doing, returning good for evil done to him. And that's how we have to live. It's, it's the only way we can do this. It's not a victimized do-gooderism. It's one that recognizes that we have a champion that will work his will and we're not going to get in his way. And we look to the Lord's reward. Those eternal things that cannot be taken away from us. That blessedness, holiness, the righteousness that Christ works for us. To sit at his side and to reign and judge the world. These are all the rewards of heaven and there are many more beside. So love, agape love, is not disinterested. It's not one that has no good for ourselves. It's not one that is victimized. But it is one that gives of yourself to seek the good of others regardless of what they feel towards you. Because let's, let's be very clear. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he's not saying, don't worry about those that love you. Don't worry about those that you love. No. He's, he's going to the worst so that it'll include all of it. Love your enemies. Love your friends. Love your neighbor. Love yourself. But if you can't love your enemies, then you're not really loving the others with agape love. So the directions. The directions that we must follow. We have to remember the Lord's love to us. Remember the Lord's love to you. Remember that you were his enemy and he gave Christ Jesus for you. Where would you be if God loved like sinners love. Look at verse 32. He says, If ye love them which love you, what thank have you? Uh, the literal word there is grace. What grace have you? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them that do good to you, what thanks have you? For sinners do even the same. And if you lend to those of whom you hope to receive, what thanks have you? For sinners also lend to receive as much again. It's just... Mercenary, worldly affection. Where would you be if God looked upon the world and just loved with a mercenary, worldly affection? I mean, the question then has a new connotation. What can you do unto God? What can you give unto the God? The cattle of a thousand hills are mine. What good can God get from you if he loved you with a mercenary love? Until you can love your enemy, until you can love your enemy, all your love will be graceless. And you don't know the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you can't love your enemy, then this is a cause of prayer to throw yourself down to the Holy Spirit and beg for that grace, beg for that new heart, that you might be a child of God, a child of the highest in Christ Jesus. But to those who do, 
and wondering how to do so better and how to do so more, we have this wonderful principle, the golden rule. Not avoid those things that aggravate you, you know, avoid doing to others what aggravates you, but rather do positively, actively good in such a way that you want others also to do unto you. Not what I can get away with. Not what, as, as we read this morning in, in Deuteronomy 15, not looking to the seventh year and thinking, well, if I lend now, I shall never see it. Not uh, just the bare minimum, but remembering the generosity and love of God who gave His very Son, the thing that was in that thing, the one who is in his bosom from the foundation of the world and before the foundation of the world. And so you have to go and say, wake up every morning and say, how can I do good for the souls that I encounter today? How can I seek God's glory for those? It may be a rebuke. There may be sinners that need to hear a rebuke from you, and that is love. Spoilt child is not a loved child. But it may be that you have to turn another cheek. And you have to not only part with something precious, but you have to part with other things precious as well. But remember, you're called to be merciful as your Father in Heaven is merciful. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would give us the grace. Give us the grace to, to do what in us, apart from you, is impossible. To love as you have loved. Give us, dear Lord, the patience, the wisdom and the forbearance, the gentleness and the generosity necessary to show forth the light of your love to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.